Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland. And this is Emily Gibson. And we're the co-founders of ATX Television Festival. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. We know how I feel about Halloween. Well, we know how you feel about Halloween candy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you've listened to the... You should go back and listen to Inside ATX. Emily and I have very deep conversations about Easter versus Halloween candy. I would And people have feelings. That may be the number one thing that people tell us when they talk to us after listening is that they agree on our candy assessment. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say, even though Easter candy does win, totally, I'm not going to shun Halloween candy. No, no, no. No. I mean, I feel like... I won't shun any candy. The thing about Halloween candy is... Right now is just an excuse to, like, eat more candy. Yeah. It's literally it, everywhere you go. It's just repackaged regular candy. Well, and it's even more than the rest of the year. Everywhere you go, someone has a some sort of pumpkin oh, dish yeah, yeah. filled with candy. Which I both love and hate. Yeah. So, I mean, doctors, malls. Your friend. Uh, friends. Whatever. You walk into anywhere and there's yeah. just a jar full of Halloween candy that you're supposed to take some of. And I very much appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I, I support a Halloween. I think it does sound fun. I just never really opt into. I loved it as a kid. I just I'm not an adult wear a costume Halloweener. I do love watching Scream near Halloween and Hocus Pocus. I watch all of the Buffy Halloween episodes. Oh, that's oh, look you you went into theme. Good for you. Television. I mean, that's, Good yeah, job. that's what I that's what I watch because if you don't know this, I am a chicken. Mm-hmm. And She's a chicken. I am terrified of ghosts and axe murderers, as I feel like everyone should be. And so that's kind of what Halloween represents to me. So I would rather just stay in and watch Buffy kill some vampires. Oh. Well, Hocus Pocus is very light in that frame. Like there's no Hocus Pocus is pretty dark. I mean, there's no axe murderers. Oh, I know, but they eat children. Yeah, but they get it in the end. (laughs) That's true. But totally off topic. So today, well, maybe not. Well, no, it is. Um, (laughs) Please come around. Well, because I thought for a second maybe some of these shows, which I think they do, are kind of dark and spooky. But we are releasing today our casting panel, which this year was Casting Anthologies and was presented by the Casting Society of America. This was our fourth or maybe even fifth year partnering with Casting Society of America. We love them dearly. Tracy Lillian Field had reached out to us, I think it was like the second or third year of the festival, about her coming and has helped us really like navigate those waters and really be able to talk about a lot of our panels. We like to start really broad, like just like what is casting in television and then get very specific with various relationships. And so I think this may be one of the most specific we've Mm -hmm. ever done as anthology series have gained popularity. We thought, what is that like? To cast is that easier is that harder what does that allow you to do so when we started out we really looked at what shows we wanted represented fargo was high on the top of the list talk about that's what i was saying like kind of spooky fargo i mean like not halloween spooky but like dark menacing i rank things as scary and spooky they are different can i watch them by myself at night can you watch fargo by yourself at night? i can't okay great so that's less on the scary spooky well we have rachel tenner on this panel who casted fargo (laughs) then it's funny so we also have sherry thomas on this panel because she cast the twilight zone the new cbs all access twilight zone that's jordan peels yes yep we mainly just i mean one that is a great show and i think it's so cool it came back and jordan is a genius but we really just have been trying to get sherry thomas to the festival for <laughs> yep. many many years she did breaking bad she's done a bajillion things also true. so we just needed an excuse like i don't think we built this panel around her but we definitely were like she's done one anthology <laughs> it is she's the twilight zone board, but she's cast so many things so that many things. 
it is a good for her to be able to talk about the difference between casting all the brilliant shows she's done and casting an anthology show and what goes into that and how hard that can be. 100%. And then we have Andrew Feminella. I apologize if I've said that wrong. Feminella. Um, who casted High Maintenance, which we screened last year mm-hmm. with HBO. And so they're all talking to Ben Travers, dear, dear Ben Travers yeah. from IndieWire, about sort of that like highs and lows, like maybe even the rise of anthologies. Because I think it's, you know, we talked a little bit about what it was. And in this case, we actually, we did talk to them. We would have had them represented for sure. But in our debates about similar to like, what is a reboot? What is a remake? What is a, you know, whatever. Reimagine. Right. Similar with anthologies is what is a miniseries? What is an anthology? What in casting anthologies is, you know, brand new cast like Fargo in its three seasons that have been released has basically new cast. There's a little bit of crossover with character, but that it's, it's new cast. There's no crossover there. Whereas like the American horror stories and things like that is the idea of People can hear the sirens. There's some sirens. Yeah, I can hear it, too. Okay. That feels very, I mean, on point. Spooky. Spooky. You guys, and... somebody's in trouble. Go get them. Uh, Halloween. Oh, <laughs> Halloween. Who knows what that is? <laughs> oh, side note. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American Horror Stories are ones that I cannot watch at home, at home by uh, myself at night. Uh, can you watch or them ever? during the okay, day with or people? by myself or with people. Great. So we're just going to put that there. <laughs> but most of them, at least for a very long time, I think they've kind of veered now, but had the same cast just in new parts, which to me is just sort of like casting a TV show and you're just doing a whole new space for it. So there was a lot of debate on that. And then what is an anthology? Is it a sing? You know, True Detective is very, ob- like, in my opinion, a very obvious one. It's the same moniker of show, but very different seasons. Do you know, mm. I don't know if you would or why you would, for American Horror Story, mm-hmm. because they obviously, Brad Murphy did the first season mm-hmm. and had a specific cast for the first mm-hmm. season. Not everyone went on to Correct. the various subsequent seasons, but as I feel like he goes, he builds collects, and collects yeah. on, and those people keep continuing mm-hmm. on. Do you think he has this wall of, <laughs> this is very specific, of like the people that he knows, not even that he just wants to use over and over again, but that are kind of on board uh-huh. and in a like, they're there. They're there for it. Sarah Paulson. Like, she's what in for it. What can I put Kathy Bates in this time? Yeah. Do you think he has this more and he's like creating the characters based on this group of six to eight actors he knows is going to be in all of them? Mm -hmm. Or do you think he writes it and then he's like, okay, now who can play this person? I'm going to say in a way that I have absolutely no idea. I know. There's no way to know Um, the answer to this. It's a little bit of both. Yep. I think the most likely is a little bit of both would, would be interesting to me, which brings it back to casting and like what a casting director does. And Jen and I have talked about this in the new iterations of whatever our casting panel is next year, is the concept of what is that casting director doing? Because you know a lot of showrunners and creators are like, you know that Ryan Murphy... I believe in a little bit of both. Sarah Paulson will be in anything that I want her to be in. So like, and she can do everything. So like Ryan Murphy is basically casting Sarah Paulson, not the casting director. Whereas like, it made me wonder with like something like Euphoria, which we're getting a little off topic because it's not anthology. But Jen and I had the conversation about like, I bet with Euphoria, Sam, the creator was like, has mentioned that he had always pictured Zendaya, which she thinks is incorrect, that that's not possible. (laughs) That's for them to decide. But let's just say, in a way I don't actually know, Sam writes this show and is like, I want Zendaya to play the lead. Well, then the casting director is not casting Zendaya other than maybe the paperwork of it. But there's this huge cast of like somewhat unknowns, Mm -hmm. like that casting director is coming in to do that, which I find interesting in what what is this casting director doing? You know, which, where are they helping versus what is the showrunner, especially the more powerful and big name a showrunner gets where they come and they're like, I want these three people and the casting director is just going after them versus I recently heard an interview with 
Rick Linklater on his new movie, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? There's, they're introducing a new young person. And he said his casting director here in Austin had 600 girls come in. Oh and he and some the interviewer was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you saw 600 people. He's like, oh, no, no, I didn't see 600 people. <laughs> she saw 600. That's her job. I saw like 100. And I was like, well, that's, that's a, lot. a lot. But like that's what that casting director did was like this new role for this girl bring 600 down to 100, whereas he was probably like, Kate Blanchett, go get her to be in the lead. So. Well, and that's, I mean, I think of Fargo and Alison Tolman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a Came out of nowhere. brilliant find. Yeah, yeah. And she is incredible. And she was so good in Fargo. Mm-hmm. And how a casting director can know, especially for an up-and-comer, someone mm-hmm. new, seeing an audition that, even if the audition is brilliant, yeah. knowing in a, I'm going to say seven to eight minute audition, I have no idea, that that person can then carry not even an episode but a season season. and be this thing and i feel like that's risk it's total risk but also cool about anthologies is you can take a few more chances and i think it's interesting especially on twilight zone if you're just casting an episode episode. you can totally i hope really go after looking for new people because then it's a i want to see if this can be a breakout star that's something we didn't talk about at all that i think they do which is the difference between like a twilight zone and like a black mirror where your anthology is episode to episode versus season to season so like defining anthology is also a new interesting direction of tv so with that we're going to leave you guys to your candy. Please be safe <laughs> this evening or day, really, because who's to say? Probably this weekend, too. You guys just like... Just, you just, should be safe at all yeah, times. <laughs> you should be safe at all times. But I feel like the Halloween, if it's Thursday and it's Halloween, this thing's going Thursday to Sunday. So don't think that you're out of the woods, literally, um, until maybe Monday. And don't OD on, on, on all, and whatever your candy preference is, candy corn or... Reese's peanut butter pumpkins and oh, that's ours P.S. That's, that's ours and enjoyed this episode from season 8 ATX Television Festival casting anthologies moderated by Ben Travers thanks everybody thanks for coming out um, how many of you been to this festival before let's start with that okay great that's what I like to see how many of you have come to the casting panels before Oh, great. All right. We've got some newcomers. We've got some old-timers. That's great. Um, I am Ben Travers. Uh, I'm the TV critic at IndieWire. Uh, I've been lucky enough to moderate these panels the last two years. This is my third. Um, and I, I love these people. They've got great stories, and they're underappreciated. So give them a warm welcome. All right. So let's start with uh, none other than the casting director for The Twilight Zone, but also Breaking Bad, Handmaid's Tale, Barry, Halt and Catch Fire, Gotham, so many more brilliant television shows, Sherry Thomas. <laughs> Uh, next up, we've got the Fargo casting director, but also Catch-22, Escape at Dannemora, Waco, uh, the great television show review, uh, Rachel Tanner. Uh, and then this gentleman has worked on Russian Doll Power and uh, is the casting director for HBO's High Maintenance, Andrew Feminella. All right. Well, morning, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Uh, very excited to be here. Um, first and foremost, I just wanted to kind of help define things, because we're going to be talking about anthology TV series today. And um, I feel like anthology is a word that gets tossed around a lot. Like, people 
understand what it is by now because they've been become so prevalent, but at the same time there are seasonal anthologies in which kind of the story restarts every season. Uh, there's episodic anthologies in which, you know, it starts a new story kind of within each season um, and, you know, those also reset from season to season two. Uh, so kind of digging into that, luckily we've got, you know, people who've worked on all of these here with us today. Um, so first and foremost, I just wanted to ask... Um, it seems like the episodic version would be more labor-intensive because you do have to start that process over every episode. Is that how you feel? Like, is it is it just kind of a bigger task to take on when you sign on for that project? Well, I think in terms of the Twilight Zone, yes, um, there was a lot of pressure. I think coming into this season with a you know, a, it's such an iconic, obviously. Um, show and it isn't a place where you can for lack of a better description discover talent it's about um marrying the roles with people who are going to really sort of elevate it and and get people to to tune in quite frankly you know yeah uh so do you have to kind of start with the star i mean basically with with all anthologies and you know high maintenance included like you've got your central figure that you kind of have to work around do you always have to start with casting that kind of one figure or does it come together more organically depending on timing and and opportunity how do you go about approaching it when you're first given like this is your first script or this is the first uh, season what do you kind of have to start with i mean for fargo we always have our one anchor for every season. Like you always start getting your big name that's gonna come on every season and then kind of start building everything around them, you know, maybe one or two people. And then the good thing about Fargo is that, you know, once you do have your anchor, then you basically can start casting whatever you want. You know, we can, like this year we're gonna shoot in Chicago and so we have like our set people and I would say probably 50% of the cast is gonna come from Chicago this year for big roles. So, you know, it's like fun to, right, like it's fun to be able to bring in a whole bunch of new people on that show and uh, and play around that way. But you do still, in the same respect, have to get a couple name people set to anchor your, you know, those seasons every year. Is that harder though? Like the, the idea of, of casting someone from a different city, like when, if you're, you know, pulling talent from Chicago, do you do a lot of on tape auditions when that happens? Do you like go we, over to Chicago and then bring them in? How does that? Well, so I was a casting director in Chicago before I moved to Los Angeles. So for me, I was like, great, done. Um, and I'm working with my ex-partner, um, Mickey Pascal in Chicago and Jennifer Rudnicki. And so I'm very excited. I mean, Chicago's so rich in, in an acting pool. You know, there's amazing theater there. There's Steppenwolf, Goodman, everything. And so I'm not worried about it. If we were shooting in more of a rural area, maybe something where there's not as much of a an arts community, I would probably be a little bit more, or we'd end up having to travel more people in, you know? Yeah. But sometimes I feel like when you have a limitation, when you have a boundary, like I did this movie, A Serious Man, and we were like, everybody's gonna come from Minnesota. And like, once you had that parameter, like you dig, like you just dig deep, you know? Like I'd go to synagogue like every weekend. <laughs> like, you know, you go in the back, I'd be like, hey, I'm here casting a movie for the Coen Brothers. And like, <laughs> And, um, and you, but you just dig and you find them and then it becomes, and it's, you know, it's so much fun, you know, when you actually have a boundary versus like you have unlimited money and unlimited, yeah. your person can come from Venezuela or wherever, you know, so. Oh, I have one question though for Sherry. <laughs> I was wondering, um, yes. when you do the Twilight Zone, how, would you get the scripts, how far in advance do you get scripts? Um, 
some we got very far in advance and some we did not get very far in advance and we would get story outlines and so your idea you know what you're doing quite often is just pitching what it's going to be to you know the agents and the managers and seeing who's available and who loves the twilight zone and wants to you know sort of come in and and be a part of it but some of them not not enough time just give what was the fastest oh la uh, two weeks, and we shot in Canada, so you had to deal with visas and right. all of that. And you know, when you do a show that shoots outside of Los Angeles, we all work with partners. Um, so you know, The Handmaid's Tale shoots in Canada. Barry is our only show right now that shoots in LA. Oh, and Dead to Me shoots in LA. But everything else, The Walking Dead, Fear, all of that shoots other places. And so you work in partnership with the um, location casting director. So you really rely on each other to. Um, you know, come up with the same aesthetic, you know, and make sure that the that the vision, you know, has a through line. Yeah. So, is it the same for you? In terms of when we get scripts? Yeah. Like how fast do you have to turn around? As you can tell, that's kind of my <laughs> my nightmare. So I'm like, well, yeah, how does it work? <laughs> yeah. Well, high maintenance is interesting because we sort of have the opportunity to bring on sort of namier people, but. The, we're kind of allowed to do whatever we want, which is nice. There's not that pressure to attach that thing. So the scripts sort of change all the time, but there's also flexibility to, sort of as Sherry was saying, kind of pitch less what the story is going to be and more just people we think might be interesting. And sometimes the stories have adapted to reflect what the casting is going to be, and they change that way, where it's like, oh, you know, this is a person we've really wanted to get on the show. They sort of fit this story as it exists, but then if it's this person, it's going to change in these ways, and then we sort of get to go from there, which takes the pressure off a little bit because the scripts, especially for high maintenance, change constantly. I mean, last season we were offering a role, you know, they change a lot, I guess is what I'll say. <laughs> they change a lot. Um, they change a lot, very frequently. Right. And so sometimes same. Sometimes there have been sort of things where we need something really specific that uh, can be a little bit nebulous, which is helpful and also a little bit dicey because mm -hmm. to some extent there's the ability to change what the story is going to be, but it also makes it harder because then... It's like, well, what are we looking for? Who knows? Right. So it works both ways, which is nice. Well, I, w I wanted to ask about that, too, because especially with high maintenance, and, I mean, it's very rooted in New York, and it, it has that, you know, very strong sense of community, and, and, and you know, it's one of the, my favorite things about the show. But in terms of casting, like, do you, I mean, I imagine you, you search, you know, far and wide for, you know, whoever, you know, best fits the role. Um, but how do you go about making sure that they, that they kind of, have that right aesthetic and they fit into that vibe of the series? Like, how do you kind of look for that while you're going through the process? Yeah, who knows? Do you have like a, <laughs> do you have like a definition in your mind? Like, do you have an idea of like, this is what a high maintenance person should? Yes. Okay. And I mean, essentially, I guess that's part of the art of casting is being able to, the same way that every other designer on a series is required to sort of figure out what the vision of the creators is and sort of fit that to their particular task, whether it's costumes or set or production design. It's the same thing with casting. We're designers in that way. So yeah, I've been working on the show since 2013. So at this point, there's a sort of shorthand and we kind of know who sort of fits the world of the show and who doesn't, which makes it interesting sort of trying to work with talent reps sometimes because sometimes the ideas don't necessarily fit the right. world of the show right. as much as they might other shows. So, yes, I guess is the answer to your question. No, that's, no, that's great. And, I mean, also for, for everybody, really, when you're having those conversations with creators, especially at the start, and you're trying to figure out, 
that aesthetic or that feeling or that vibe or, or just the look that you're trying to get from these actors, um, what kind of questions are important to you? Like, how do you talk to them and try to get what you need uh, to know to feel comfortable in, in casting, like in, in bringing people in and bringing the people in that you think they'll be responding to, like the creators will respond to? I mean, I think that, like, you you have a discussion about tone. I feel like the last few projects for me have been so tone-specific and period-specific. So, like, Escape at Danamora, um, Ben Stiller really wanted this to have a 70s film vibe, you know, a dog day afternoon kind of feel. And, you know, once he kind of, you know, was expressed that, like, I knew exactly what we were going to bring in and, you know, what we what kind of people we wanted to have to populate everything. And we did, you know, featured extras, and it was like a, it was a, big thing but um so that was that and then catch 22 you know that's a war piece you know that's a 1940s war piece so that's also super specific I also know George's um what he likes you know what his inclination is and then of course Fargo is specifically very Cone Brothery and so I had done a lot of work in the Cone Brother world prior so that's really specific and that I can you know spot quickly like I'll see somebody and be like, oh my God, that's a Cone Brother person, <laughs> you know, like, and, and try to see if I can get their name and number or something, because it's so specific. So um, for those specific projects, it's, it's, it's a lot about tone, it's a lot about the period, and if they have an overall sense of what the vibe is they want. Because even on Catch-22, they didn't want it to feel like the movie and be that broad, you know, like the Mike Nichols film, and, you know, have a little bit more um, groundedness. And so it's just those conversations, I feel like, build what you yeah. what you're looking for it's conceptual in the beginning you know you have the script and then you will get conceptually you know what the vision is between you know the director and and the writers also but when you have the relationship established with the creators you also are given the freedom to kind of go outside that box and that's what I think the most exciting part of casting is and why we love doing what we want to do is we want to be creative you know I don't and I would imagine neither one of these guys feel like we are way you know a, a service you know industry in terms of a waitress or a waiter like I don't want to just present people and not have a conversation about it I want to collaborate with people and that sometimes gets lost in casting they um, the idea that that actually happens is you know sometimes forgotten about so when you have that relationship um, Bill said Hader said to me um, this season and it was one of the nicest thing anybody has ever said to me that I've worked with he said sometimes you know what I'm looking for before I know what I'm looking for and I was like thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks and it was and it, it's those little things that make us feel uh, of value to the whole process right. well when uh, with something like the, the Twilight Zone and you're having those conversations. I mean, again, like you have you have different directors uh, for most of the episodes. Yeah. You have different writers for a lot of the episodes. Um, obviously, there's producers who are who are there yeah. throughout. But are you working with everybody? Are you having conversations with as many people as you can to try to get the vibe for that specific episode? And what's oh yeah, that lots like? of cooks in the kitchen, and you have to you hear everybody and and you hear what they say. And also, we have. Casting, sometimes you can't articulate why somebody is the perfect person for the part. Sometimes you just can't put it into words, but you know it. And that's part of what our job is. It's a very sort of like instinctual um, 
right. feeling. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think for something like The Twilight Zone, because it's like a mini movie for every single episode, you know, it's a new director, it's a new writer, um, you can go after and attack somebody, not attack somebody, but really try to engage somebody into doing an episode because maybe it's something they've never been given the opportunity right. to do before. So, um, you know, Steven Yoon um, really wanted to play, you know, the alien um, because he just doesn't get that opportunity to really dive into a character like that. And so you get to, you get Chris O'Dowd, the same thing. He got to do something very dramatic where usually he is not given that. So it's a strategy also. Um, well, I wanted to talk Don't a little bit about... No, that was, that was, that was great. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of that, that instinctual feeling and, and how it can also apply to, uh, I guess, some of the bigger names. Because, again, anthologies, you know, they have a tendency to, to attract um, big talent because it's a, it's a shorter commitment and, you know, they're willing to, to do that, you know, in between movies and stuff like that. But um, so I wanted to ask about some specific people that had cast that had been cast in some of your shows. But at the same time, if that's somebody where you're just like, I don't have a story you know it, you like, you know why they're great. Just try to think of somebody who you were excited to incorporate. Like Steven Yoon was a great example from the Twilight Zone. Um, but with Fargo, I wanted to start with, could you talk a little bit about Carrie Coon and what you saw in Carrie Coon for season three where you were like, She's Carrie, is, Carrie Coon's okay, an obvious this is, one. This is what I Which, always yeah. come to, but. Carrie Coon's an obvious one. Because <laughs> she's, we all know Carrie Coon as being like an amazing dramatic actress, but I also knew her from Chicago and from theater and stuff like that. So I had already, I had auditioned her for season one of the Alison Tolman role. So um, I've always thought she had a place in this show and uh, Noah was also was very into her. So I think it was kind of just like, a, oh, it's Carrie Coon. Let's just get Carrie Coon. Is there something though about kind of the, the, like a specific aspect of her talent that was underappreciated that you were hoping to highlight through the show? Like something that you wanted to bring out? Like, hey, this is great. People are going to discover this when they see her in Fargo. Well, there is... I mean, she she's one of those actors that... You know, if, if a scene has humor, she'll find it and bring it out, but she's not going to come in and, like, yuck it up to bring out the comedy, you know? So I don't know if people normally see her um, in, in any light way, lighter way, you know, with the humor and everything like that. Um, so, you know, that was an opportunity for her to do something a little bit more warm and and with some humor and stuff like that. But she... It wasn't a big... I didn't feel like I took somebody out of the box and stuck them in and was like, oh, my God, look what I've done. You know, it was... Uh, she seemed, like, very obvious to me as have, just someone who would be amazing in it. Do you have a favorite, like, so far that you were just, like, that kind of surprised you even after you'd cast them or you were like... I loved Martin Freeman in season one. I was like, I... You know, you only see Martin Freeman... Now you don't as much, but at that point you only saw him as being this kind of goofy kind of... Not silly, but like, you know, just really, I mean, amazing with humor and all that. And then I just was like, let's just watch this guy go on this dark journey because he really, you know, takes, he takes quite a journey in that season one. And I loved watching him do that. I thought he was amazing. So that was one of the more fun uh, roles to get to do. I'm trying to think who else. Um, Stuhlbarg is I guess, and David Thewlis oh. was someone I was so excited to get. We've been trying to get him into Fargo for years, too, so he finally jumped in season three and was just every bit as brilliant as I was hoping he was going to be. Yeah. So 
That's great. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, with uh, Andrew, with with high maintenance, I mean, um, I really I really loved the casting of Amy Ryan, and I feel like Amy Ryan is somebody who. Uh, really hasn't been appreciated since, I mean, even since she got, she was Oscar nominated. Like, she's gotten some roles, and we've been able to explore certain things that she can do, but um, was there something that you really appreciated about her or that you that you saw in her that, that you were surprised she brought to the episode, anything like that? Yeah, I think, sort of same as Rachel, like, that wasn't really a discovery that we can take credit for. Uh, I don't think I we sort of plucked someone like Amy Ryan no, from no, the no, but, like, but she was someone who also, um, the creators of the show had a little bit of a relationship with, oh. and so she was really down to um, come do an episode and just did that episode in season one, and that was sort of it. The way the show works is that, you know, anybody can come back at any time, but there's never really a sense that she came back in an episode in season three, and so that was, you know, several years later in terms of when it shot, but there was just sort of an opportunity to tease out a little bit more about that character and what they're... Because we didn't know what she did professionally, her character. And so then this season there was an opportunity to say, oh, well, what if in this episode that person is actually this person? And so I guess to your earlier point, there's not a very interesting story there. No, that's fine. But uh, does does landing somebody like that early on, like in a season one, like as a guest star, does that help kind of, uh, you know, broaden the profile and attract a larger range of talent? Like is that is that something that helps in the casting area? I think we certainly hope so. Because, um, you know, it just... I think especially on a first season of a show, there's so much of an... It's a little bit of an unknown because there's no proof of concept, really, where it's just hoping that people trust the work that the people have done before and want to sign on for something. So, yeah, anytime that there's somebody like that who can sort of move the needle a little bit and help establish the thing even a little bit more and get people to pay a little bit more attention to the thing I think is always helpful even though that's not necessarily the goal of course the goal is just to make something good with great people but yeah you know having somebody like Amy Ryan on a show isn't going to hurt isn't going to make people pay less attention to the thing and then you get the call season two three and four you know from oh my god so and so would love to you know do an episode of Breaking Bad I mean when we did Breaking Bad AMC wasn't even on the map yet they, they had shot Mad Men, but it hadn't aired. And so when we were doing the pilot of Breaking Bad, and the budget was like nothing, and everybody was like, what is this? But you read the script, and you knew it was going to be unbelievable. And then as we started going, um, we always had the idea that we would just cast it very real, but also you know, we didn't have the money to really sort of get anybody else. And then it aired, and then the writer's strike happened, and we only aired, like, seven episodes. Um, And then season two, in the industry, it started to catch on. People were like, oh, my God, that's the greatest fucking show I've ever seen, and, you know, the whole thing. And then once it got to Netflix, that's when it really took off, and... But it, it it definitely helps. And you can also say, because a Carrie Coon and an Amy Ryan have such a, um, a, a critical uh, cachet behind them, people critically love them, and especially, particularly in our industry, they're so, they elevate anything they do. So then, you know, Andrew can get on the phone and go, you know, Amy Ryan did an episode. And people are like, oh, Amy Ryan did an episode. Well, then surely it must be really good. So it helps, for sure. Right. Do you do you get more of those calls, like the the ones where like um, you know I, I want to be a part of this, like somebody actually reaching out to you instead of the other way around with anthologies because they're lesser, or is it yeah. bit okay? Oh, for sure. We did a lot on the Twilight Zone. You know, people that are just obsessed with science fiction or the original, and really, you know, w- w- please keep them in mind and find something for them. 
And also, I think to your point, because they can be, well, if it's the whole season, then it doesn't make as much sense. But if it's especially an episode, there's more availability to do that. Where if someone's doing something else and they have a short window of time, yeah. there's more flexibility to get so, to figure it out and make the schedule work and get a person to do an episode where they might not be able to necessarily commit to a whole season or right. all those months. And then for me, I was going to say the same thing, but but about a limited series versus a you know regular show. So they don't have to have a multi-year commitment. They just have to come on and shoot it like they're shooting a movie and the time frame. And so you have access to people that you don't have access to if you're doing a, a multi-year series because, um, well, I don't know, things change so much now. But, but it is a much um, easier sell and uh, you're able to get people that you normally might not be able to. Yeah, they don't have to sign on for seven years. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's daunting. Like yeah. that's, a, that's a big commitment, even if it's yeah. something that you're you know, excited to do. Um, well, with Sherry, Sherry, I want to talk with the Twilight Zone a little bit about um, Dewanda Wise. Mm-hmm. Um, she's somebody who's, who's kind of come up in the world of late, like people are really starting to notice her and, and get excited about. But um, her episode was so unique, and it was a little later in the season, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Um, what was it about Dewanda that kind of made you think she'd be a good fit for this? How'd she come into it? And what do you really respond to her as an actress? Like, how, what is it about her that kind of sets I her I think apart? The, the, the thing particularly for me that I've learned over the last year is, it may have started with The Handmaid's Tale, actually. There are, what I've, there are really good actors, um, but to pair them in the right roles sometimes, most of the time, I really, it needs to be complex. It needs to be compelling. You know, they can do a great audition. They can be a really good actress and do a fine performance. But I feel like in the work, I'm looking for something that is just, again, you can't really describe how to get there, but it's a compelling quality that they innately have that's going to elevate whatever that role is, you know, as opposed to just doing a good performance. I don't know if that makes any sense. But so for this episode, particularly, it was nice to be able to feel like it was um, really an ensemble because there aren't like huge names in it that people out, you know, my parents don't know any of the names of the people that were in that episode. They, you know, they don't. So DeWinda was kind of that centerpiece and brought complexity um, and just tonally, you know, fit it perfectly with then Jessica and, um, you know, Jackson White, who's amazing. So it all just kind of came together. Um, I'm trying to think of who, I think Jackson was the first person that we cast in that episode, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, through the process of doing this, and and again, with so many people reaching out to you, like trying to, to get in there, is there, is there, how do you make room for kind of the discoveries and how do you make room for the people that you're just excited to get in if you've got kind of a, an influx of, of names that the network might want or names that are going to help sell the show? Like, how do you go about balancing that? Well, sometimes you have to fight for, you know, really, truly what you believe in, you know, which I'm not really afraid to do. Um, <laughs> um, but there are times where there are things that are out of your control and you, you know, you have to, um, make the decision based on the collective, uh, response from the group. And then, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, but what you then do is, uh, surround the, the, the rest of the, you know, surround it with everybody that you do love, that you do feel passionately about, you know? And I think that speaks to your earlier point, too, about the relationships that we have with the creative teams, where we do get a little more 
latitude and where we can sort of start those conversations. And because part of the job of a casting director is to look at the big picture and to get everyone to agree on the thing and say, okay, well then if we're going to put this person here, then yeah, we get to sort of give those opportunities to other people where we do want to elevate other people. And like Sherry's saying, sort of, okay, fine, we have this one piece of core casting and then let's then populate the rest of this with people who are interesting and perhaps a little bit less known or, you know, and that's I think part what of people forget too is that you know when we're casting something, we aren't just casting what's right in front of us. There are actors that we've been seeing for ten years. I mean, to your point, Carrie Coon, you knew from the theater in Chicago before anybody ever knew who she was. And so we track these people. That's our job. I mean, there are actors that I have read ten times, twelve times that I keep trying, keep trying because I love them and I believe in them. And then finally, you go, oh my god, I got to cast them, and it's it's just so exciting. And so when you have sometimes a creative person who's like, well, they weren't that great in X, you say, that's not the body of their work. Right. I can send you 10 auditions that shows 10 different things, and, you know, it's amazing, and, you know, that's what we do. That's the, that's the craft. Right. And your filmmaker also has to be confident and believe in the choices as well. You know, like, I'll have some directors who are like that's the part you know I'll be like this is a great person they'll be like we love that person let's cast him and then there's others that are like yeah but like you know are there we should probably just keep looking keep looking keep Shoppers. looking keep looking then they go back like I had a show where the first person I brought in after then later having to see like 300 people got the part mm-hmm. and I was like well that if you were to listen all to yeah. the time yeah, it's constantly. always the first the person you bring in the first person you think of and they're like well I don't know that's our creative involvement. It's like you read something and you go, oh my God, I have the perfect person for this. And then you bring them in and you're so excited and yes. you're like, this is it, this is it, this is it. Yeah. And then you go back and, and you're like, exactly. And I think sometimes it's, um, you know, on behalf of the other people involved in the process, there is that little bit of like, well, I don't know, should we see other people? But you know, if you have great casting directors involved in the process, it's like, well, of course we're going to bring you the best idea first because that's part of our job yes. is to really zero in on the thing. So sure, exactly. we can go through. And that's not to say there aren't times where, hey, I start thinking that it's one thing and then we yeah. sort of learn a little bit more as we go through the process right. and it ends up being something else and that right. thing's good but there are plenty of times as we've both said like you know we're of course we're going to give you the best idea first because that's our job is to figure out right and sort of as Sherry was saying before even beyond necessarily what everyone else might think it, well I don't know if it's that and we're like you know we can see the big picture and that's part of the art of casting again is just like yeah. being able to really see beyond necessarily what is right there or what people think they want saying like yeah. it's actually this thing and it's so and it's going to be so much more interesting and elevate the thing it's like for Catch-22 when I had a when George and, uh, it was George Clooney and Grant Hasloff and so when they called and they were like well this is, you know, for Usarian, we want him to be this a little bit grittier and somebody who obviously can have some of the humor but has a lot more like a darkness to them. And they were just describing it. And I was like, oh, it's Chris Abbott. Do you guys know Chris Abbott? And they're like, no, we, you know, we don't know him. And I was like, oh, hold on. I'll, I'll send you materials. But, you know, whatever. And then we had like, two days of sessions of like five people each. And then, you know, we did like a due diligence, like run. But then they just cast Chris. And you're like, because you just sometimes, it's not all the time, by the way. There's other times I'm like, well, you know, they're like, we need a British girl. I'm like, there's no British girls. (laughs) Is it Kate Winslet? Because if it's not, I don't know. There's nobody else. Like, you know, like there are times, obviously, like your brain is like, you know, blank. But in that moment, I was like, oh, it's this guy. And you just know it in your gut, you know, and then it's, and then they obviously do the audition and they're amazing. And you have to have the filmmakers though who say, you're right. Like, I get it. Yeah, trust. 
Uh, well, I wanted to, especially speaking of, of filmmakers specifically, I wanted to go back to kind of what at least has become an established narrative on on my end, like for for a lot of reporters and critics out there, in that this this new anthology trend that we've we're kind of in the middle of and, and enjoying right now started with True Detective. That's the kind of thing that people say. They're like, "Listen, that was HBO. Matthew McConaughey showed up. He was in it right before he won the Oscar." And that was kind of the moment in the show that set this thing off where people are like, oh, no, no, we can keep doing this. We can attract the big-name talent. Yeah. We can make more anthology shows. Um, on your end, did, is that, first of all, is that kind of how it felt? And, and then when it started happening and you started getting those opportunities to cast more anthologies, what was that like? Like, what was it like to kind of be like to shift gears from series to something a little bit? Sure. Well, first Even of all, when it first came out, let's just, you know, I have a little bit of a sore spot in me as much as I love Alexa Fogel. Um, you know, they were, they, in all of the um, awards, they put themselves into the um, drama series. Yeah, yeah they did. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that was our last year, finally, you were Breaking Bad and our first nomination ever for an Emmy, and we lost to True Detective. And I was like, God damn. I mean, not to say we would have won if True Detective wasn't in it, but. Um, you know, it could have been Game of Thrones. Whatever. Anyway. Um, but yes, I think it did open a lot of doors. Now I'm done. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, the, the beauty of it is that you have the opportunity to now tell a story. You only have to commit to a time period of a movie, but you get eight hours, ten hours, six hours to tell the story and develop your character over that time. So I think it's so luxurious. I think it's so appealing for naming your people because the writing now is so amazing on so many shows. I mean, as much as Complex. there is, yeah, as much as there's an enormous amount of content, almost too much sometimes, the level of it can be absolutely brilliant. So I think there is an appeal to doing this kind of work for a bigger name now. Yeah. And obviously McConaughey putting like the stamp on it or whatever, if he really was the first person to do that, um, it's really opened everything up. There's like, only, I feel like, a handful of people, really, that still are like, nope, no TV, no TV. Yeah. You know, everyone. but everyone else is kind of like, maybe. Yep. Plus, they pay so much money now, everybody. <laughs> so <laughs> I think everyone's just like, yeah, I'll do it, you know, <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, who wouldn't, you know? It's so much money now. Mm -hmm. Well, going back to those, those conversations that you have to have, I mean, one of the things that a lot of people have talked about, especially with filmmakers coming over to make anthologies, like a lot of movie directors seeing it as like, well, like you said, it's like I, I have this opportunity to tell a whole story, but I actually have more room to tell it. I have eight hours or six hours. Uh, does that kind of affect the conversations that you have? Like, do you have to kind of work with people who are kind of first to TV or new to TV in terms of like what the commitment is for the actors and what you're looking for long term and how much has to go into it, or is it is it comparable to when you're working with a, like a, an experienced showrunner and somebody who's been in TV for a while? Huh. I don't think. It, yeah, I mean, sometimes you are educating people that have had you know a, a great story to tell, a great idea, and they might be first timers. But typically, I think what happens in that instance is the studio or the network will pair them with a more um, you know seasoned uh, showrunner or director. Um, but somebody within that has to be able to give up the the idea, the ego, the power, whatever, however you want to word it, that there's that, that somebody does have to lead. You know, there is only one leader. There, you you don't have multiple leaders, um, and everybody can have a voice, but you know, there's typically one vision and 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 one leader to the pack. But 
Um, there are people who have never had experience being a showrunner who come on the scene and they just have it. It's a managerial skill, quite frankly. It's understanding what each department is and understanding how to get people to do what you want them to do and respecting their contribution to the overall um, project or piece of whatever it is that you're doing. That's how, you know, I think it goes. Well, in, in terms of, um, I guess in terms of trends that we're seeing in the industry, I'm curious kind of what you're seeing on your end um, about, you know, even even going down to the specifics of just uh, the prevalence of on-tape auditions. Like, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who say that they're doing, that they're seeing a lot more of those, so they're seeing a lot more people from outside of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But I've gotten a lot of different responses in terms of whether or not Casting directors think this is a good thing or not, yeah. uh, because some people are, are adamant they want them in the room and they yeah. have to have it in the room no matter what. But I mean, what do you guys think of? Like, do you have preferences? Yeah. Why? What? I mean, we again, our, most of our shows don't shoot in Los Angeles, so you um, have actors that you know that are outside of Los Angeles, and um, at that point, uh, we would ask them and request a self tape for you know whatever the project is. Um, if I'm casting something and I'm having a session and I know the actor is in LA, I want them in the room with me. I There is no way for me to know if they can take direction unless I obviously know them. There's no way, I also wanna get to know a person because if you're an asshole, I don't want you on our set. You know, and if you're, you just, you, it's, you're putting people together in a room and there are, I, I feel like there are some people that are exclusively self-taping, whether they're in LA or not. Like that's all—that's the only way that they will accept auditions. And for me, as a casting director, how do I direct them if they're not with me? Yeah. Um, so I have really strong opinions about that. As everything. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's good. You never apologize for yeah. that. Never apologize. I love self-taping. I think that now that we've been able to, you know, that that's such a viable means of auditioning, it's allowed us to access, you know, internationally. I mean, like the, the world is so much bigger now as to who you have access to for your show. And it's really exciting. Um, but I agree in Los Angeles, if you're there, you come in because, you know, I want to direct you. I want to work with you. I want to get it to the place where I'm sending things out and, and you're going to have a chance to get it. You know, sometimes if people self-tape, you're like, oh, it was a great self-tape. Can they redo it again? Like we just had to have like someone redo it four times and then they got the job. But so it's, a pain, you know, I'm sure it's a pain in the ass for them. It's kind of a pain in the ass for us. It's, it's great if they're in the room. But I wouldn't be doing self-tapes for people who are in Los Angeles. Yeah, I think that's like a weird new trend for things. And I think, you know, look, I'm sure they feel like they can see a lot more people if you do it that way, I guess is what I'm thinking. But, yeah. yeah what I found is that... But you're younger, Andrew. How do you feel about it? Oh, <laughs> thank you. I have a great surgeon. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you his number after if you want it. But uh, yeah, I mean, what I've seen is that sort of to both of your points, yes, I think self-taping can be helpful because it allows us to broaden the scope and yeah. to get in touch with many more actors. Because yeah. at the end of the day, then I'm just sitting there and watching tapes as opposed to necessarily needing to direct people. And so I get to go through, you know, people who, if they're not necessarily a right fit for the role or don't necessarily have the technical skill, great. And then that speeds up that process. But yeah, at the end of the day... I don't think any of us would want, and as both of you have just said, like if someone's in New York, I want them in a room in New York because that's part of our creative ability and part of our creative skill is working with actors and figuring out you know, if they can take direction, if they are the kind of person who I do want to put on set. So I think 
it, self tapes can be very helpful for the beginning part of the process, perhaps in broadening the scope of who we have reached to. But at the end of the day, we always want to, you know, casting is such a collaborative art. So yeah. I think getting in a room with people is ultimately what we want to do. And so, yeah, if there's somebody in New York who's not coming in and who's sending a self tape, it's always like, but why? Because then, because we, I've also been in those situations where it's like, okay, they're self taping and then okay, well, can they, can they do this a little bit different? And then they self-tape again, and they haven't quite landed that note. And then it's like, okay, well, then here goes two more days and waiting for that to end. So it oh my God. just draws out the process so much longer. And in television especially, there isn't that tie. It's like, you got to be on set next week. I, I worked with a casting director out of, uh, I'll just say out of town. Um, and she did all self-tapes. And I was like, oh, my God, if you take any longer auditioning people, I'm going to have a heart attack. Like, it was the slowest process because she preps it. And then we wait five days for the tapes to come in. And then you're like, oh, my. like, it was so annoying. And but you can't really say, like, if that's the way someone does it, they do it. But be like, would you mind having people come into your office and audition, please? So I can see, like, you know, like, like yeah, the time's moving. Did they like, have an office is the well, question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I know I'd call and she'd be like, oh, I'm at my um, summer house. And I'm like, I bet you are. Just running to a I bet meeting. you are. And some assistant somewhere is doing all this work. But, but yeah, so I believe all of us feel the same way. You know, I was just thinking during this whole thing about how I think all of us are so lucky that we work on projects where, you know, everything feels so artistic from, like, the lead down to a one-line role, you know? And I think that that's, a, like, a real luxury, you know, to want to care and flush and create these worlds that we do that are so specific, you know? Even, like, Handmaid's Tale, like, something that's so, um, you know, of a... You're really creating this world and every role matters, which they always do. But, like, you know, it's not like you're doing CSI or something like that where there's just, like, <laughs> volumes and volumes and stuff. So it really allows you to be as artistic as you want to be and care as much as you want to, you know, whether you're involved down to featured extras, you know, to help flush and, out the thing. You know? And and I think that the casting directors that are on those shows do care and they do yeah. want to be able to do that. It's just harder because it's feels much more corporate, you know, having done both, you know, having done a lot in the network space and then now a lot in the streaming cable space, you know, you work your ass off. We have a community of people who are out there just, you know, they take great care in that episode, that piece that they're doing, which is, you know, the millionth episode of CSI and they work their asses off trying to make it the best that it can be. And sometimes they just don't get the respect or get the, um, acknowledgement that they're doing so, you know. So props to all of our peers that yes. really well, yes. And I think it can also yeah. And I think it's also a product of specifically anthology series where it gets to be a little bit more story driven or uh, character driven than necessarily plot driven yep. because then we get to do sort of yeah focus on interesting people telling stories rather yeah. than like we have to make sure that these plot points are ticked. So right. like let's right. let's just right. we have to get in a certain amount of people. And hey, those shows are also great. I watch plenty of them, but. I think it's the thing that is a little bit more unique to an anthology sort of series. Yeah. Well, you guys spoke to this just a second ago a little bit, but I do feel like the the directing side of the casting director profession of role of responsibility, like that part gets lost a little bit. I feel like a lot of people don't acknowledge it. And I'm I'm kind of just curious what you guys like when you're when you're getting into it and when you were working with as you still work with actors, I mean, what are your what are your kind of how did you do that? Like, how do you go about, like, what, what was it for directing that, like, drew you into it and wanted to work with actors specifically? And how do you continue to kind of develop that and hone that skill 
now, like as, as you continue to see people and it just becomes you know, overwhelming. There's so many. You've gotten to know so many over the years. I think a lot of it is it just experience. I mean, me giving direction as my 30-year-old self to giving direction today is you know very different. And I think we've all had, at a certain point in time, we were in the room with producers and directors and the writers. And so you learn you learn from the best you learn from the worst you learn you no matter what you're doing you learn if you're open to it and i always i don't ever want to stop learning because if i stop learning then what's the point so i really um i love it and um we just started working on something with tim van patten um we're doing perry mason and i've never worked with him before and he is um an artist and it, and he articulates in a way that it just speaks to my soul. You know what I mean? Like he is just a phenomenal human being and just a phenomenal artist who is so smart, but doesn't condescend or patronize or talk down to. He's like on your level. But when he speaks, I'm just like, ah, I just am like, you know, listening to him. And so it, it's, I'm inspired, you know, I think. And so you just learn how to connect with a person in the room and try to figure out how to get them to do what you need. I mean, the biggest and and you know the biggest direction that I would give all the time would be like just throw it away, just throw it away. As particularly for Breaking Back, because Vince was always like, if they could just not do anything, we're like, okay, great. And so I would say, you know, when we would have people self tape if they were in New York, it's like do what you want to do, then do it this way, and then do one where you feel like you're doing absolutely nothing. Right. You know, and so if you guys are self-taping, like if there are any actors in here, just always do one take where it feels like you're literally not doing anything, and that's probably going to be your best take because it's grounded and connected. You know, but um, you just you learn from the people that you surround yourself with. Yeah, and I think time is like you're saying, like you know, when you first start. Now I had to take class. I took classes when I was young and started in this, so I could learn how to like talk to actors and work with actors because I didn't really know. What you know class is what. That? I took like auditioning classes and how to like do. Oh, I'm not not casting director classes, but performance. Yeah, Yeah. because I felt like I didn't have the the language to be able to communicate properly and get what I needed from them. You know, I'd probably be like, do it like faster, funnier, and then I, you know, but then um, I. (laughs) (laughs) When when it when it is required, that's a good note. (laughs) So I think once I was able to get more specific and actually use the right, you know to speak in more actor language, um, I felt like that was definitely a big growing process. And then over time, you just, you know, perfect it and know how to, you know, how to break down a scene and yeah. you know how to get what you want. I, you know, we used to sometimes like, you know, you work with people so much in the room and then they get the part and then the director will call and be like, you know, they weren't as good as they were in their audition. And I'm like, that's because I'm maybe a better director. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. No, I am kidding. <laughs> no, some. You are, I'm sure. But, As we all but are. But it's true. It's because we work, you know, you work so much with them and you, and you've, you do it so much. Uh, you know, year, I mean, 25, for me, it's 25 years. So, like, I feel like I can get what I need sometimes. And, uh, and that's the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's the quote that's going to go out in the world. <laughs> right. Me, yeah. I'm a better director. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we have to say about that. Uh, And I'll just add, I think, to both of the points that were made. Yes, I think a lot of it is just sort of learning from the people that we get to surround ourselves with. And what's been helpful for me, too, is uh, I was saying before to Rachel and Sherry that I sort of came up through theater casting. 
And so it's just been interesting getting to see the ways that people throughout different media sort of approach that. And so I worked in the theater for many years, and then I worked in commercials for a few years, which is a totally different thing, and have also worked in television and gotten to be in rooms with directors who just approach things differently. And the thing that's been helpful is, yes, seeing what is... Because at the end of the day, right, it's just learning how to connect to a person and communicate effectively and seeing what is in service of someone's audition and what is not helpful in a situation. And so I think as much of it is yes learning what language can be helpful. It's also seeing what isn't an effective way to communicate and to sort of like communicate a need or communicate sort of an idea. So I think, yeah, yeah, it's just picking up from the people that we surround ourselves with. And to Rachel's point, yeah, seeing, you know, in those times when we've had those instances where like a director is trying to sort of get a point across and not quite. And that's always a delicate thing of, do I have enough of a relationship with that person to sort of chime in in a way that I think will just be helpful to sort of connect that last dot so that the actor can give the performance the director is trying to get them to give, yeah. which right. can be part of our job also, of just trying to help the thing out. Right, because I think a lot of directors, um, you know, I look, a vast majority, like most of them are great with talent, but some of them are so great with every other area, and obviously, like, I could never... I probably couldn't do 90% of what they do, you know, and and so like truly, and it's just, but this is the one thing we do over and over and over again. So it's just like a, it's a muscle that's just been used a lot, you know? And also because auditioning isn't shooting the thing, like isn't filming. And so I think there's definitely more of a, you know, it's so much more immediate and auditioning is so challenging for the actors because the stakes are so much higher that it's like, I think someone who's great with actors on set sometimes might struggle a little bit with connecting in that space of an audition because the, it's just so much different. They're still trying, the actor's still trying to get the job at that point as opposed to right. having the comfort level of having the job and being on set doing the thing. Well, I want to make sure that we have time for audience questions. So um, we've got a mic if you guys want to start. Oh, yeah. Okay, we're eager. I'm just going to go. I was I was going to give one more, but I don't need it. We're going to get as many of these as we can. So, uh, sir, please. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Hi, this is, this is great. All right, go ahead, um, sir. Yeah. So, I, um, by the way, Ben, I've been in a lot of your stuff. You are an excellent moderator. You ask great questions. You're very Yay! good. He's very, very kind. You have your own interview show. Um, all right, so I'm curious about, since everything's changing in the landscape so fast, how early you get in the process. I mean, you seem so oh, integral. Like, and so, but, so what happens when little old me from Atlanta, Georgia, just wants to do like a web series for a start because no one will talk to me, and then, but you've got this vision and this skill that I want to hire and learn from. I mean, is that something you're open to? How do I get to you? And then I want to talk to you after this. <laughs> but uh, in general. Specifically, other, other or the me. best director no, 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 on the no, no, panel? No, oh, oh, no, no. <laughs> We're, we're going to start an LLC and you both are in. No. Yeah. But no, no. He is hilarious, too. No, I want all three of you. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think all of us are material driven, so it has to speak to us. And uh, we work really hard and it takes a long time and it's not easy. So whatever you're doing, you better fucking love it. Otherwise, yeah. there's no point. Um, and so, uh, I mean, it, it really it starts with the script. For us. So, so, so it's not, the, so it's not just the network show. Like if, so like the guys have been trying to get something going. They have a, they did a GoFundMe at, this, at State Theater to, earlier on the comedy show. I mean, they would approach you as well. I mean, you, who, who, who generally comes to you and gets to you and, and climb? Is the, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, um, sometimes they'll find us on IMDb and they'll reach out through our agents um, or they somehow get our emails and reach out directly or phone or, you know, whatever. Okay, so you're open to that whole market. Yes, 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 yes. sorry. I mean, same with indie films. I've done indie films that have a budget of $500,000. I don't care if it's a beautiful piece, if it's a really good... For me personally, where I'm at in my life, I want to do things that, that are meaningful content. 
that's like something that's just, you know, and meaningful in a funny way, meaningful in a dramatic way, whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that's great. of course. Thank, thank you. you for the question, yeah. When looking at new talent that isn't already on your radar, what is it that makes somebody stand out to you immediately? And on the other side of the coin, you mentioned uh, not wanting to work with assholes earlier. What are the asshole red flags for you? Really? You don't know what an asshole looks oh, like? Oh, I mean, I, I'm just saying what, what, what gives you the instant the Ego, instant, instant. attitude, not listening. Right. Um, you know, when, when somebody... It's, it's okay to come in with a point of view and an, and an idea, but if I'm day three into my auditions for a specific role and I'm giving direction and you're not listening, I'm just saying you, I'm not, you know, but, and, no, and no, you're no, not listening, listening and you're not open to hearing what I have to say, then you're there for you and only you. And to me, that's kind of an asshole because it is a collaborative space, even in, even in an audition room. Yeah, and I think to speak to that also, the thing that I think it feels like actors can lose sight of sometimes in the audition process is like, we're in service of getting the right person to get hired. Like, oh, yeah. as soon as we have the right person, then we get to move on from this thing. And so, right, we're never giving notes to sort of direct you away from the thing. Or it's like, or if a note is being given, take the note. It's in service of your audition and to try to get you closer to what is wanted for the thing. So I think, yeah, yeah that's typically a sort of red flag as if someone's right. not listening to the thing. As Sherry was saying, especially if we're into the audition process, it's like, well, we've had several days of seeing what does work and what doesn't work. And so it's like, we're just trying to get you really close to the thing as quickly as we can. So it's always a little bit, it can be a little jarring or you know, incongruous to see someone who's not willing to sort of take that note and collaborate in that way. It's like, we're, we're doing this for your benefit. Yeah. <laughs> and that was more, more what I was getting at, which was uh, where somebody may not be conscious that they're projecting something um, in terms of not, not being willing to listen. I think if a conversation is happening, they'll know that if they're... Uh, that's not my problem. I'm not a therapist. <laughs> you know, no, and I yeah. say that sometimes it really does become about that. And there are people who are genuinely, there is something genuine and authentic. And again, it goes back to our gut and our instincts, and we can tell what that is. And so if they're having a hard time cracking something, I'll do whatever I can to help. But if they're unconscious of it, then they've got to go work on that in their life. So when they come in the room, we can work together. And I'm not bumping up against, you know. Right. Yeah. Right, you're not with the person who's like, I didn't prepare it that way. Yeah. I didn't see it that way. I didn't, you know, that's not the way I, you know, I wanted to do it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Hi. Um, yesterday we did the, uh, well, we didn't, but I, I went to the, the sex scenes panel, and it was really... Oh, I didn't know there was one. Yeah, yeah it was amazing. Um, the intimacy coordinator... Uh, did a lot of talking uh, about what happens when they're actually on set, but then she does. She did uh, like the actor as well. She said that sometimes you don't know what you're getting into when you're cast for something, and so you you you, you say yes, and then all of a sudden you're like butt naked doing yeah. whatever. Um, and so it, it, how, especially if it's an anthology where the first season wasn't as sexy or as uh, anything and people go in with certain expectations how are you, how do you change like how do you deal with setting up expectations uh, so the actor knows what's happening what's going to happen what they're signing up for you mean letting them know that there's potential nudity well not only nudity but it could be like it could be like 
there's nudity and then there's uh, like where you're just sitting on a couch, you know, I don't know why you'd sit on a couch, nude, but but then there's nudity where, you know, your boobs are like smacking somebody in the face, you know. Well, hopefully they ha- everyone has to read the script, you know, and um and you definitely want to let people know up front if there's going to be like any nudity, any simulated sex, anything that seems that puts people in a vulnerable position like that, you want to make sure they know about it. You know, that's something that also gets really negotiated as well. You know, just because someone says yes, right, you know, takes the part, there's another discussion that happens that, you know, between like the agents and the people, you have to have nudity riders, like there's a lot of um, specifics that go into it to protect the actors. Um, so usually it's just about making sure there's full disclosure, mm-hmm. you know, if that's, uh, if that's something. Yeah. The actor was just saying that she sometimes says yes and then doesn't want to say no when she finds out what happens. So what, well, what's actually going on in the script? So right. like, is there, is uh, that something that you'd be willing to talk to the actor about? Like how yeah. they, f- how they feel about something since you've actually read the script and they only get like a page or two. Well, I think that, you know, um, I don't know if in, uh, I don't know if it's specific to anthology or not. I think it's just when we read a script and we have had conceptual conversations with the creative people, if there's, if that element is going to be there, we want to know. And we, I'm, I try to be very sensitive about that. Once it gets down to, you know, potentially who these final choices are going to be, it's a, it's a very lengthy conversation. Um, I, uh, you know, and and this is this is how the conversation goes. There's going to be nudity. Um, what are they comfortable with? And they're like, well, I don't know. I'm like, side breast, nipple, no nipple. Right. I mean, it's literally you have those specific conversations. Right. If you're doing your job well, it sounds like maybe you know, in that particular instance, it wasn't communicated in a in a way that it should have been. So I think it's a case by case basis. And if it comes up later in the season, then it really is. It has to be come from the actor to just say, like, I'm not, I'm not comfortable. comfortable, you know. And I'm sure it feels awkward to do that, but you kind of have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you for the question. Uh, hi, all. I'm Megan. Thank you for sharing your knowledge today. Um, my question is about the world of the show. So you were mentioning that sometimes you have a conceptual conversation with production and uh, an actor immediately pops into your head. And I'm wondering if and when, if it does occur, uh, you're given a breakdown and you think of someone of a completely different ethnicity, gender, that you really actually think, ooh, we could expand the world by going this direction. Um, (laughs) And just sort of what your, your, I'm sure it varies by uh, the production team, but what that conversation can typically look like to sort of fight for a moment to expand the world of the show. I think it just comes, I think that's what, the job is as a casting director. I think we're always supposed to look outside the box and try to change it up a little bit. I mean, if you're working in a, in a period, uh, like Perry Mason is uh, 1931, it's very Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And we've talked to the historian who's the consultant on it. We've tried to push the boundaries. Well, could this have been? Could this have been? Because we want to infuse that. Now, Handmaid's Tale, that was a different thing. We got to do, we, we got to create the world we live in now, but in this 
in this time that didn't exist in the book. The book was very white, um, but we had a, Bruce Miller, to, you know, to his credit, and all of us had a commitment to make it the world we live in today. So that's our favorite thing to do. I mean, if it's a man, why can't it be a woman? If it's a woman, why can't it be, you know, um, a, 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 a diverse woman? Or a, you know, it, that's we we push it all the time. Right. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the difference. Like we touched on before, I think that can be the difference between sort of the view of casting directors as necessarily in a strictly administrative ta position versus a really creative and collaborative position where we get to have those conversations and advocate for the things that might be necessarily beyond the scope of what people think they want and will be something that is maybe more interesting than is being discussed or will elevate the story in a way that maybe people aren't necessarily thinking of. And so, yeah, that's like that's the best part of the job. That's right. like the best version of the thing is when it is creative and collaborative yeah. and not just someone saying, oh, we want this thing and us saying, okay, well, sure, here is the, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. well, no, hey, we get to ask those questions and say, well, what if it's yeah. this? And how does, wouldn't this make the story a little bit more interesting and add a little bit of texture to the thing? Right. That's great. Very good question. Thank you. Sure. Goodness, tall people. <laughs> <laughs> You're taller than I am. Um, so, I think we, we understand reading a part and seeing in your mind, you know, oh, I could see Carrie Coon playing that role. But I think the actor might say, I can play any role. And Amy Adams would say, I can play a role that Carrie, you know. So how do you differentiate between those two mindsets as you're casting? And then in addition to that, when and how do you decide to then, you know, I see Carrie Coon in that role and she's totally available, but I also want to open it up to the tapes I have or people I've seen before, or the list, or oh, just open casting. Wait, well, do you mean in terms of, yeah, so, the, <laughs> yeah, so to clarify the question, do you mean in terms of having a conversation between more known actors and less known actors, or you mean just well, between someone like Amy Adams and somebody like Carrie Coon? Truly both questions. You, if you see in your, if the script doesn't say, you know, a beautiful woman with long curly red hair, you know, and you're reading the script. You just, you know, you, you you see the character, and you can you can see in your mind somebody playing that character. But I think if you had actors, you know, if you had open casting, or you know, so maybe an, like an actor would say, "I can play that role," even if you see somebody else. You know, I see. How do you decide that it's a Carrie Coon role versus an Amy Adams role from an actor's standpoint? when the actor might say, I can play any role as an actor, I can embody that character. You know, I think it's just, I think if I'm answering correctly, it just is part of that instinct that we have that someone in your gut feels more right. Yes, to be honest, Amy Adams probably could play everything. Carrie Coon <laughs> could play everything. There aren't any, though, yeah. that can do ev anything. Yeah, there, I mean, examples. I think it's, right. it's, yeah. it's, you know... There are, there are a, I think, a handful that truly can do anything. Anything. Stolberg is one of them. Right. Kuhn is one of them. Right. You know. So it's yes. just a matter of trusting your gut that, that the person you're thinking of is really the right person. And then hopefully everyone else, you know, there's a lot of people, like we were saying earlier, there's a lot of people involved in the process. So, you know, seeing to get everybody on board. But, um, yeah. And what I think could help speak to that also is in terms of the gut instinct of it all, is that uh, as casting directors, we get to look at the big picture, and so we might know something about where the story's going later on that can help inform those minor differences between, sure, you know, we're 
discussing great actors. That's part of the job is that we want to find the best people for the role. But sometimes there can be something that we know will come up later on that maybe one person would have a greater facility for accessing or doing rather than another. And that can help sort of tip the scale, too. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we've got time for about one or two more. So let's try to speed around it a bit and see what we can do. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate hearing your guys' thoughts on what you do. Um, I'm Nikki Tomlinson, and hearing you talk about when you get a show and you, you don't have a script and you're pitching an idea, that was interesting to me. I recently bumped up against something that was very foreign, and I wanted to know if this is something you've seen or are start to seeing, starting to see. Um, a project came to my agent and they didn't have a script and there was a big studio attached and they wanted to see actors improvise a scene in this, you know, improvise a scene about XYZ. No context about what the tone of the show is. Have you ever seen that or heard of that? Yes. Yeah, I think that's... I mean, yeah, in the comedy space, you do. Um, I think what most of my shows would do is they would um, write a fake scene, um, which is really hard sometimes because it's not serving exactly what's going to happen. So everybody's shooting in the dark, and it's like you know you're 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 working in a vacuum. Um, but yes, it it does exist, and that's just through the um, I don't want to say paranoia, but people who feel that they need to protect a, a storyline or whatever it is that they're doing. And then in that case, is it appropriate to ask the questions, what's the tone of the piece? Or is it, are they just wanting to see what the actors bring and what their essence is? Sure. I mean, I think you can always ask what the tone of the piece is, but also familiarize yourself with the work of the people involved. Because, you know, sort of like Rachel was saying before, if you can spot someone who's like a Coen Brothers kind of person, look at the directors and the producers and the writers who are involved and the other things that they've done and sort of see tonally what makes sense. And you can be on... Because, hey, you might hear back in time, if you're supposed to be putting yourself on tape for something, you might hear back in time with, oh, well, this is the tone, but you might not. And so part of the business of being an actor is just educating yourself on the work that these people have done. And so... Of course, you know, you don't want to be totally in the dark about the thing and guessing, but you can inform yourself that way of saying, like, well, these people tend to work in this particular style. I'm going to go in this direction rather than doing something totally antithetical to the body of work that these people have done before. Mm. All right, awesome. really, Thank really you. quick, one more. Okay. Thank you for that. Yay, last one. Um, hi, I'm Kimberly Ehrlich. I'm actually a casting associate. I, I look up to all of you, and thank you for being here and sharing with us. And I, I'm always interested as to how you got to be casting directors, how you got your start, if you knew that you wanted to be in casting, or how you found that out? I didn't know what a casting director was. I moved to LA when I was 22 with 150 bucks and didn't know anybody. And I think like many, you're a performer growing up, and I thought, oh, you know, I, I was a singer and a dancer, and I'm like, what? I'm short and kind of thick. I guess I'm not going to be a dancer, so I guess I'll be an actress. And then I went to, you know, L.A., and I literally fell into it, and I thought, oh, my God, I can marry, you know, a sort of business side that I had with a creative side, and then I just worked my ass off. Yeah. Yeah. I... Um always knew I wanted to do something in the industry, and I interned for a producer in college, and then I interned at a talent agency, and then when I was at the talent agency, an internship avail uh, position became available in casting, um, and this was, I was at NYU, and I went back to Chicago, and I went over to the casting office, and they were in the middle of Hudsucker Proxy, 
And I was like, this is the best thing ever. And I loved it. And it was kind of one of those succession things, like just the the way things were. And um, I was like an intern, part-time, full-time, and bought the company all like in two years. So then I had a agency there for like eight years and then sold my part and moved to LA um, in like 2002. And then just worked my she ass She hasn't up. stopped yet. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, can I say one quick thing? Because you made a really good point, and I feel like I said something a little out of Turner before, but I didn't mean. But I, because I was implying, when I said something about the CSI stuff, I think I was more implying to, like, the content of the limited series versus um, an episodic. And I thought it was a really good point. I, a procedural, exactly. Um, is that everybody, this is such a hard job, you know. Yes. And it is so much work, and... And no matter what you're doing, it's a ton of work, and everyone really does work their ass off, and our artists in their own right, whatever job they're doing. So I didn't want it to feel like I was saying anything disparaging about my fellow casting directors, because I know there's so many jobs I could never do, and um, and so I just wanted to kind of clarify that, because I felt like I didn't want to make that sound like, because everyone works so hard, and and I want to commend everyone, you know? And um, sort of similarly, I got into casting not necessarily knowing exactly what it was. I think casting directors even still, there's a little bit more visibility around what casting directors do and don't do now. But even when I got into it 11 years ago, there still wasn't, I had no idea what it was. And so I just sort of guessed and got lucky. I thought sort of similarly, there was a way, I knew I was really interested in actors. I knew I had a little bit of a business mind. I knew that I did not want to be an actor, nor did I have the skill to be an actor. And so I was sort of thinking about what that might look like because it wasn't necessarily producing, although part of the job of a casting director involves skills yeah. that look a lot like producing. And so I sort of took a guess at where all these skills could live together. And he said, oh, well, maybe it's casting. And I took an internship in casting. And you know, on day one, it was like, oh, yes, this is great. These are, this checks all the boxes that I was hoping it would check. And so I got very lucky in that sense. And then, yeah, I think we all just worked our butts off and stuck around. I was a man. I just have to. I was a manager at the Gap. I was an assistant manager at the Gap, and I transferred. So I used my two-week vacation to drive cross country and come to LA. And I met somebody who was working out of Victoria Burroughs' office. Oh, I and worked for that. I was uh, I, somehow I just started interning. So I would work every single weekend so that I'd have two days off during the week to intern. And the first day that I was there. This is a long time ago. And she was like, why don't you go and get this? It was right after lunch. And she goes, why don't you go and grab the sides and bring them into me? And I was like, okay. And I go, and I am not shitting you when I tell you I was looking for sides, like for French fries or for a salad or for whatever. Crudite. And I was like, I, what, I don't even, okay, great. And then this actor happened to come in and they were like, hey, do you have the sides for Jim? And I was like, yes, I do. They are right. <laughs> And it, that's how I learned what sides were. And so you had to kind of keep your mind open to all this language that you had no idea. And then I brought all the sides into Victoria, and that's how I learned. She never knew. And that's casting. Uh, well, thank you all so much for thank coming so out. Much. Thank you for your great questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them. but thank you, uh, yeah. You're awesome. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and AJ Myers, along with our audio partners, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount 
on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.